This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The U.S. Department of Defense's military health system works to ensure that the total military force is medically ready to deploy and that the medical force is ready to deliver health care anytime, anywhere. What are the strategic priorities for the military health system? How has the military health system sought to address some of the critical challenges it faces? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Karen Geis. Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs within the U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome, Dr. Guys. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Nicole Gartner. Nicole, welcome as always. Oh, it's great to see you, Michael. You too. So, uh, Dr. Guys, before we delve into specific initiatives, would you provide us with an overview of the history, mission, and continued evolution of DOD's health affairs, and in particular, the military health system? Absolutely. So, as you well know, the primary mission of the military health system is to support the medical needs of our combatant commanders. And we do that in a couple of ways. One, we make sure that our uh, military members are medically ready to deploy anywhere around the globe on a literally on a moment's notice. And we also make sure that our military medical providers uh, are always ready to deploy and to support the needs of the combatant commanders. We do that uh, every day, so that's that's our primary mission. But we also have several other things that, that we do uh, and are engaged in all the time. One is healthcare delivery to beneficiaries. That's something that we do, um, again, every day and value greatly. We also provide uh, medical education uh, through the university and through our, our training facilities down at uh, San Antonio. We train medics. We train nurses. We train um physicians. So that's a very valuable piece of what we do. We also have a public health mission. Uh, We make sure that uh, facilities are safe. Uh, We make sure that we're aware of what's going on from a public health perspective for our military members. We also have a role in humanitarian and disaster relief. Uh, That is something that uh, the nation observed the military step in and help with the Ebola crisis in Africa. Um, We have uh, the comfort and the mercy who go out on missions to support disaster relief. So that's another part of our business. And then the other thing we do is we enter into private sector partnerships because we can't do this by ourselves. Um, And sometimes we have uh, strategic partnerships with other nations, particularly with their military medical uh, providers, so that we actually uh, help and support each other. As everyone knows, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we didn't fight alone. Uh, And we had other countries participating, particularly with uh, the provision of health care. So making sure that we have a tight partnership with those other providers is something that's very important for the department. 
So do you get a sense, maybe briefly, the scale of operation you lead? Uh, how is it organized? Uh, what's the size of your overall budget? Number of folks who uh, work for you and your geographical footprint? So the FY16 budget uh, that was authorized for the department was for, for health was $51.2 billion. What that does is it uh, covers our operations, maintenance, procurement, research and development, personnel, construction, and the Medicare-eligible retiree health care fund. I would imagine that most of your members, your, your listeners, don't um, uh, know what that is. And so that is actually the program that's set up to fund our Medicare-eligible retirees through the TRICARE for Life program. Uh, as of today, we have about 150,000 personnel, and that uh, consists of uh, 84,000 uniformed military and 65,000 civilians. And this is a worldwide operation. We have hospitals and and uh, uh, support for our beneficiaries, uh, sort of regardless of where they live, through either the TRICARE program or through the direct care uh, system. Wow. So that's a huge organization uh, and worldwide. So now that we understand a little bit more about the organization, can you tell us about your specific responsibilities and duties as the acting? Assistant Secretary? Absolutely. So as the acting Assistant Secretary, I serve as the principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense for for health issues. And what that entails is that I administer the military health system budget. Uh, I oversee the development of medical policies, the analysis that's associated with that, and I make recommendations to the Secretary and to the Undersecretary of Personnel and Readiness. I issue guidance to the Department of Defense components on medical matters, so to the to the services, medical departments. And I act as the principal advisor to the Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness for uh, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear medical defense programs and deployment matters associated with the force health protection. Um, so that that's uh, uh, kind of the job description, if you will, on a more practical um, matter, what this means that I have uh, authority direction control over the Defense Health Agency, the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, the Armed Forces Radiobiology Research Institute, the Defense Center of Excellence for Psychological Health and Traumatic Brain Injury, the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, the Armed Services Blood Programs, Office, so as you can see, it's a it's a fairly uh, robust and uh, complicated job. And with that comes a, a number of challenges. And I'm wondering, uh, would you tell us what your top challenges uh, are? How have you sought to address those challenges? Um, the the challenges that I think are inherent in any kind of work, such as uh, the one I just described, are of communication and organization. And by communication, uh, what I mean is we continue to kind of stovepipe operations, and what we need to do is continue to work on how we communicate better across those stovepipes so that we do things together as a single unity. Uh, what we're tr we've tried to do with the military health system is make sure that we are very transparent in our communications uh, among the components and across the, the Department of Defense and even into our interagency work so that we have very clear direction and, and are organized to, to affect the 
the change that we need to um, to to manage. The other thing I would suggest is that the the organizational structures are are very important as you're trying to get work done. So uh, in a complex organization such as the Department of Defense, we are we are organized along sort of uh, lines of effort within the department, and then within personnel and readiness, where where health affairs associated, there are three assistant secretaries of defense, each with a unique portfolio. However, my observation has been that there are many, many issues that cross all three of our our portfolios and that we really need to have a more organized approach to manage those in a particular undersecretary's portfolio. So we've really worked hard uh, to make sure that we both communicate and that we're organized to get the best effect that we possibly can. So along with these kinds of challenges and the breadth and the scale that you um, outlined for us... um, there's bound to be some unanticipated or unexpected surprises. Um, to that end, what has surprised you or what did you find that you didn't anticipate? So my, my answer to that is that uh, I've actually found very little unanticipated or unexpected surprises um, because leaders are supposed to anticipate surprises and are supposed to mitigate um, way in advance so that you don't have surprises. I think some of the things that have, have actually surprised me, though, are sometimes the reactions, uh, which which are interesting, uh, but if if you work collaboratively and you work on transparency, you really minimize the, the the opportunities for those kind of surprises. So, as a as a senior leader in the Department of Defense, I, I think it it's it's my job to anticipate surprises. So, fortunately, um, that hasn't happened very often. Those big surprises. So, Dr. Geis, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that it's the job of the leader to anticipate. Uh, surprises, but what other characteristics make an effective leader? And perhaps you could outline some key leadership principles that guide your efforts. Sure. So I think uh, I think there's several. One, I think leaders need to be confident. Uh, people need to to trust in their decisions. So confidence is a big part of that. I think good leaders are transparent. They let people know what they're thinking and invite um, other people to contribute to the thought process. I think there has to be a, a an enormous willingness to listen. Uh, the good leaders listen. Um, they take in an awful lot of information and they act appropriately based on the information that they have. And sometimes it means that, that you actually have to forestall a decision because you're not quite ready to make that decision absent the right kind of information. I think good leaders have a great deal of integrity. I think they have a great deal of patience because sometimes change doesn't come quickly. As we all know, it comes slowly. So having patience and, uh, and then inspiring your people to, to do their best every day when they come to work, I think those are um, critical, critical leadership skills. And the last one I'll leave you with is I think every good leader should have a good sense of humor. What are the military health system's strategic priorities? We will ask Dr. Karen Geis. Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diversity of topics and public management issues facing us today. 
Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Karen Geis, Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs within the U.S. Department of Defense. Also joining us from IBM is Nicole Gartner. So, Dr. Geis, um, could you elaborate for us uh, your strategic vision uh, for the military health system? So, first of all, I think that the, the military, system, military health system is very strong and very capable, and it is full of people who come to work excited and wanting to do the right thing every single day. Uh, one of the things that we've worked very hard on is to manage and modernize the, the military health system uh, with an enterprise focus. So recognizing that we do a lot of things in common across the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force medical systems, as well as the Defense Health Agency, which runs two hospitals. Um, where we operate in a common way, we should do things in a common way. Um, so we're trying to standardize and make those a, a little bit easier. As, as we work in environments where we have uh, collaborative efforts at the bedside. In other words, where we have more than one service providing health care within a given building structure. Uh, having one way of doing things, one common way of, of providing health care and, and making sure that we're using best practices just makes good business sense and good personnel sense. Um, it's hard to manage. It's hard to work collaboratively if you've got two ways of doing business. It's easier if you've got one way. We do recognize, however, that each of the military medical services have things that they need to work on for their particular military service. Um, for instance, with the Navy, they have a great interest in undersea medicine. Um, and that's, that's a unique capability that they need to work on and maintain for, for their line leadership. But most of what we do is in common, and most of what we do should have a common approach because I think that streamlines and standardizes and allows us to work at our highest level. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is making sure that our providers, our, our civilian and our military providers, are provided with 21st century capabilities. One of the key efforts we have in this regard is the new electronic health record. That is a business tool. It is a clinical enabler. It is not in and of itself a thing. It is something that is used to support the practice of medicine within our environment. Uh, and that means both in our deployed environment and our in, our in garrison care. So making sure that we get our people the right tools to do their business uh, and to make sure that, that we all get uh, the, the outcome that we anticipate and want from, from providing, providing good medical care. I think the, the other thing that we've uh, constantly worked on is strategic partnerships. As I said before, we, we can't do this alone. We need to have good partners both in the private sector and around the world to do and carry out the missions that, that we are assigned. Um, we've been working with the American College of Surgeons in a, in a collaborative effort to kind of define what uh, our deployment requirements are for, for surgical subspecialties within uh, the military health system. We want to make sure that we have uh, contemporary management for deployable skills that our surgeons need when they go into uh, a, a combat 
the situation or even just to support the combatant commanders in maybe disaster relief. So we're working very hard with the, with the American College of Surgeons. Um, likewise, you know, we, we want to make sure that we harvest the best ideas uh, that people have about how to not only manage uh, health care, um, but to innovate. Um, and to provide uh, leadership training for our, our personnel. We think those are very good strategies that will, will help us get and maintain our, our edge, so to speak. So you mentioned innovation and uh, the great efforts of the, of the military physicians and the service members are now creating a situation where more people are surviving in greater rates against much more devastating wounds. And that's a fantastic thing, but it's also providing uh, the creation of some new challenges for the military health care system. Uh, can you elaborate for us on some of those challenges and how the organization is working to address them? We are extraordinarily proud of the trauma system that we have created in theater, which led to the highest survival rates of combat casualties in any previous conflict or war. Um, what that does mean is that we have new challenges about how to rehabilitate those individuals and how ultimately to reintegrate them into civilian life when that becomes their best possible uh, route. Um, we partner with the VA in doing a lot of this work as well as with other federal agencies. Um, in the military uh, health system, we work a lot on making sure that we have the right specialty care for these individuals. Sometimes that means sending them to the private sector for certain types of care. Uh, but we've also done a great deal to enhance our own capabilities in this regard to provide the best contemporary care for our service members and to make sure that they have the right tools, right equipment, right rehabilitation to, to either maintain in military service, which we do, or to transition if necessary to the, to the civilian sector. Um, so switching gears just a little bit, can you talk to us about the Defense Health Agency, which is a relatively new group, and uh, what successes it's had so far, and what are some of the key challenges it continues to face? So the Defense Health Agency was a, a concept to, to put shared services within a single agency or construct within the department. Um, and as I alluded to before, you know, we do a lot in common. So uh, contracting uh, can be done uh, potentially better across the services at, at a more reasonable cost, harvesting sort of economics of scale. Um, we do manage our IT uh, the same way, so making sure that we we have the one electronic health record, which will help and support our providers, but all of our other IT assets as well as to make sure that we've got kind of common platforms that we use across the, the enterprise. The Defense Health Agency was the structure created to embed those shared services. If you think about it, the TRICARE Health Plan is really a shared service because it provides support around the envelope of MTFs for for referral where there's no capability within the, the MTF to provide those services or where, where there's absolutely no MTF at all and we need to make sure that our beneficiaries are afforded uh, access to care. So th those are the things that we really, really wanted to focus on uh, within the Defense Health Agency. We want uh, now, since we've stood the agency up, we want to kind of refine those approaches. The Defense Health Agency is also a combat support agency to the, to the chairman. And as such, it needs to provide 
some support uh, and and how they do that. Uh, we're in the middle of kind of structuring that to make sure that we provide that best support to the chairman when called upon. We want to optimize the, the Defense Health Agency's operations. You know, you, you can't be just content by putting a new nameplate on the door. You have to make sure that you're meeting the needs of the services because that's what the Defense, Defense Health Agency is to do. It's to provide support to the services. So we're refining those business processes that allow us to actually manage that a, a lot better across the enterprise. So it's it's um, it's it's kind of working the agency and refining and, and thinking through, now did we get it right when we set up the structure? Do we need to tweak things a little bit and making sure that we support the services to the fullest, fullest extent that we can? So, Dr. Geis, you mentioned um, modernizing at the enterprise level, and you've mentioned the health record a couple of times. Could you tell us just a little bit more about that initiative and uh, what what we might expect going forward? Absolutely. So the the primary goal of moving to the new platform was really to replace legacy systems and to come up with a more contemporary IT support for our providers. We awarded a contract in the summer of uh, 2015 to Lidos, which serves as sort of that integrator um, and uh, will, will help us to deliver what we have now branded as MHS Genesis, uh, a modernized and interoperable electronic health record across our direct care system and even into our deployed settings. Um, It is a single integrated medical and dental health record and want to get it right. So uh, I know people have heard that we're going to take a little bit of a pause in making sure that we get the right product to our providers. So we've moved the deployment schedule out just a little bit. In February 2017, however, we will deploy um, MHS Genesis at our first site at Fairchild Air Force Base Clinic. We're very excited about that opportunity, and I know the people at Fairchild are absolutely ready and excited to receive uh, receive the software and see what they can do with it. So uh, this is exciting times for us. It is not without a lot of work on a lot of people, and I want to really make sure um, that our our healthcare providers who've been an instrumental and good partner uh, with our technical people are recognized. This is about changing the business. This is about changing workflows. This is about adopting a common clinical tool so that we can standardize our business practices and our clinical practices and afford the best care possible to our patients. So it's it's exciting times um, and it's a lot of work, but we're, we're excited to see it coming to fruition. So earlier you mentioned the success of combat casualty care, and it's evolved over the past decade. Um, I'd like to actually talk a little bit more. Maybe you could elaborate on the improvements in battlefield medicine, perhaps highlight some points of pride. But more importantly, how are you going to make sure the lessons that were learned remain? So I think the, the, the first thing to comment on is the amount of dedication and work of our military providers um, in the last uh, conflicts in supporting the combatant commanders in Iraq and Afghanistan. They worked tirelessly to not only understand what was happening on the battlefield, but to rapidly infuse new learning into the processes of caring for for our wounded and ill 
service members. Um, they did that by instituting a real learning healthcare system, and we are extraordinarily proud of that. And they should be extraordinarily proud of that. Um, they sought for solutions to the problems they were seeing, and sometimes it was just as simple as making sure every medic had a tourniquet, making sure every buddy uh, using the buddy system uh, that every service member knew how to use a tourniquet because blood loss on the battlefield is the primary reason people die. So that has saved lives, has made a huge difference in, in the ability for our medical personnel to support and save lives on the battlefield. How we institutionalize the the learnings um, and the, the care that we provide is what we're doing right now, making sure that we, we, we document the lessons learned, making sure that we continually uh, create that learning environment that pushes the envelope on how to support our service members uh, and and heal the the, the wounds and and stop the bleeding um, is is critically important. I'm sure um, most everyone has heard about the recent National Academy of Medicine's uh, report on trauma and combat casualty care within the military health system, and how that report actually says that the military is leading uh, in trauma care in this country, and that many of the lessons that we learn on the battlefield then become infused into civilian health care and into civilian trauma um, so that we really improve the lives not only of our military members through these lessons learned, but we actually improve the lives of our civilians and the opportunity to save more lives within the civilian sector too. I think that may be one of the special secret sauces of the military health system, uh, that infusion of, of knowledge back into civilian practice. I think we all remember the, the day that Congressman Giffords was shot. I think people need to remember that her neurosurgeon was a reservist, and he learned how to manage those kind of wounds by being deployed. He saved her life because of what he learned within the military health system. And that's what we do every day. So it's, it's, uh, it's a good investment for taxpayers uh, because they reap the benefits ultimately. Yeah, so the TRICARE tri you've mentioned a couple of times, and it's an essential uh, and valued piece of uh, the military health system. And I understand that this year, TRICARE 2017, the T 2017 contracts will be awarded for uh, for them to begin in 2017. How are you modernizing the TRICARE program to better align how medicine is delivered today and how, uh, how patients expect to receive it? So um, I just want to remind everybody, TRICARE is the mechanism that we use to supplement the direct care system and provide care to those, those not located at near military treatment facilities. TRICARE is a an employer-sponsored benefit. It is um, more like an ERISA plan than it is health insurance. Mm -hmm. um, but it kind of looks like health insurance, and I, I think we, we sometimes get a little confused. Um, but what we're trying to do with our uh, T2017 contracts, one, one big thing that we did was we used to have three regional areas uh, and three contractors. Uh, there were some difficulties with that for our, our patients, particularly when they PCSed from one one area of the country to another and to, to try to help mitigate some of those difficulties. Uh, we're going to go to two regions instead of three. So we think that will be a, a little bit of a, a help to them. 
We're also trying to make sure that we improve the communication across those two regions so that people can easily transition from one region to the other. So that that should help with uh, those bumps in the road as people, people move around. We also um, want to work on quality. Uh, we have an increased use um, of evidence-based practices in these particular contracts. We want to make sure that we improve um, the way we manage chronic care. We want to work on integrated case management and enhanced data sharing uh, just to make sure that we are providing that best care to, to our patients. We're also working a lot on satisfaction and accountability. Um, we want to make sure that our customers are satisfied with what they're doing for us. That's the best bellwether that we have, that they're receiving the best care that they they can. And we really value that feedback loop so that if something has gone wrong, if something is, is not uh, working the way that the patient believes it should be working or that their family believes it should be working, we want to hear about that. Uh, but we're also increasing the alignment of the MTF for the medical treatment facility commander and the beneficiary satisfaction with the, how the contractor actually is performing. So kind of making sure that we, we really do coordinate people's care and that we, we provide that better experience of care for each and every one of our patients. We didn't develop the 2017 contracts in a vacuum either. So we did that through a whole series of stakeholder engagements where we developed um, the, the specifications that we included in the contract. We had lots of working groups. We met with our military medical service providers and departments. We had blue ribbon panels in. We talked a lot about innovation. We had, uh, we again, we tried to, to harvest those best ideas that are out there about how you uh, deliver care in the best uh, best way possible and and are accountable for that care. Um, and we think we've we've captured most of that in the 2017 contracts. We're not done. As you know, once we issue a contract, we start working on the next. And so we're, we're already doing that to kind of harvest the next generation of best ideas and innovations that will continually improve the care that we provide to our patients, because that's what we value. How is DOD ensuring it as a healthy and fit force? We will ask Dr. Karen Geis, Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.
What are the characteristics of a well-prepared, successful presidential transition? How does the 08-09 presidential transition represent a model to be followed by future incoming and outgoing administrations? What more can be done to enhance the presidential transition process? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Martha Joint Kumar, author of Before the Oath, How George W. Bush and Barack Obama Managed a Transfer of Power. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Karen Geis, Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs within the U.S. Department of Defense. Also joining us from IBM is Nicole Gartner. So, uh, Dr. Geis, um, I'd like to talk about uh, DOD's global health engagement. Um, How is uh, GHE an important security cooperation tool, building relationships and improving interoperability with uh, partner nations. What are some of the major challenges and threats being faced in this area? One is force health protection. We are constantly monitoring, preparing for, and responding to global public health threats. Um, I think everyone is, as we said before, aware of what the the military did in supporting uh, the African nations with the Ebola crisis. Uh, but there's always a new virus. There's always a new disease, and we need to stay on top of all of those. I think the uh, the most recent example is the Zika virus and how we need to approach that from a force health protection. We also need to have medical countermeasures when someone does come in contact with, with one of these uh, viruses or, or um, infections. And so we constantly work on making sure we have the right medications, the right strategy to, to treat people when they actually encounter one of these uh, diseases. The other thing that we really work on in value is building partner nation health system capability and interoperability. As I said before, um, what we noticed in Iraq and Afghanistan is is a multinational approach um, to both uh, fighting a war and to supporting those who are injured in combat. Um, I think that uh, the many of our, our treatment facilities in theater uh, were co-managed um, by by other countries or supported by other uh, health professionals with the U.S. taking the lead in that particular facility. Uh, so you could at any one time um, have a multiple of, of partners uh, across the op- operating table from each other. So making sure that we understand how the other partner uh, delivers, understands uh, medicine and works uh, along these common lines to affect uh, the, the highest survival rates is something that we want to make sure that we we continually build. Um, we want to make sure that, and this gets to that interoperability uh, piece of it, we want to make sure that we've we, we see each other's uh, uh, approach to, to managing these kind of problems and that we integrate as much as we can so that we are interoperable. Uh, I was recently in um, Great Britain for a U.S.-U.K. task force meeting, and one of the phrases the, the Brits use is uh, we don't want – we want to make sure that there's no stranger danger, So, that, <laughs> which I thought was very very clever and a very uh, rapid way to make sure that you know, we don't – we want to work as partners. We want to see each other across the, the operating table as, as partners in any future endeavors. So you want to know how that other individual is going to respond and, and, and help uh, to kind of do what we need to in the, the wood environment. 
The other thing that we work on is humanitarian assistance and disaster response. And this is something that the, the U.S. military is very good at uh, when called upon to, to provide that level of support. Um, we need to, to make sure that when we deploy our troops to, to a humanitarian um, effort, uh, such as Haiti, uh, or uh, African countries for an out, another outbreak of Ebola, that we really have that uh, integrated uh, approach to taking care of, of civilians and someone, some other uh, nation's civilians. And the other thing that, that we, um, we constantly uh, worry about and want to work on is uh, nuclear, chemical, biological defense programs, uh, sort of our, our cooperative threat reduction uh, programs, because that, again, is something that is, is very critical to, to supporting uh, our service members when they are in, a, in deployed settings. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the sum total of what we're trying to achieve with uh, global health engagement. Um, I not only have recently traveled to the UK for, for these kind of efforts, but also uh, I was recently in Mexico City for a meeting, uh, which I think there were about 33 international partners. And I'm always impressed about how common we are, that we have a common goal. Uh, we want to provide the best care to our service members, um, and we're we're fairly much aligned on that. So the ability to share those best practices, to share learnings across uh, a multiple of nations about how to approach problems and solve uh, common common threads is really important, and helps us to advance uh, faster. And it's quite gratifying, actually. Um, so another important dimension to uh, your work is research, which is a critical part of developing new medical treatments and, and the advancements. Can you tell us a little bit about military medical research and development activities? And are you working on precision medicine and exploring the human genome to find ways to improve clinical decision making and uh, perhaps predict uh, different outcomes in the operating room. Can you can you talk to us about some of the highlights? Uh, we are investigating ways that we can leverage the efforts for precision medicine, uh, and we're one of the uh, federal agency partners for the president's precision medicine initiative. Um, the ways that we're integrating with that particular effort is uh, we're partnering with the VA to expand their million veteran program and to make sure that uh, active duty personnel can fully participate in, in that program. Um, what that is is it's a database of veterans who have volunteered to make their personal health data av available for genetic uh, study which is a, a huge effort and one that we think we will benefit from. We have our own longitudinal study of active duty service members, the Millennial, the millennial Cohort Study, uh, which provides us uh, data on a variety of health factors. Um, and then we are um, also investigating or uh, uh, leveraging a, a strategic investments at the Uniformed Services Health University of the Health Sciences in the Collaborative Health Initiative Research Program or CHIRP. Uh, this is a major partnership between the university, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the NIH, and this is where we're going to um, look into genetic causes, prevention, mitigation, and treatment for lung, heart, and blood diseases, uh, as well as sleep disorders, all of which are impactful on the readiness of our, our uniform members. Uh, we have an, another initiative called the Surgical Critical Care Initiative, 
This is a collaboration between the University, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, and the Naval Medical Research Center and other partners in academia and the private sector. And this is where we use uh, the unique data of each patient to determine the time of debridement and closure for wounds on sort of a case-by-case basis. Um, And what we're really trying to do there is minimize the complication of uh, wound-related problems. Um, and it's, uh, I think part of this became, uh, became obvious with the, through the, the conflicts where we had uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria that would create all sorts of wound healing problems for our service members. So working on that uh, strategically is, uh, in looking down the road is something that we're, we're engaged in. We talked a little bit about trauma care and how important that is both to our service members and to the nation. And we constantly refresh our research uh, portfolio with, uh, within trauma. Uh, we are actually the nation's largest funder of trauma research. It is not the NIH. It's the Department of Defense. And we fund about 80 percent of, of trauma research in the country. So that's a huge investment for us, but because we know that reaps huge benefits for us anytime we are in a conflict uh, a zone or require that kind of uh, level of support and care. Um, we have a trauma registry. We made investments in that. To, that created that opportunity for a learning healthcare system within a deployed environment, within a, a, a war, uh, that actually yielded wonderful outcomes and results. So we want to continue to push on that and make sure that we invest in uh, strategically in our research to improve our trauma care. And the other thing that uh, we've done is we've also made strategic investments in, in TBI or traumatic brain injury. We have a, a partnership with the NCAA um, that funds the Concussion Assessment Research and Education Consortium, uh, looking for better ways to to both uh, prevent and treat uh, traumatic brain injury. So our investments in research are broad, targeted, and impactful. That's quite an agenda. Um, So you mentioned a lot of different initiatives. Um, I'm wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what the DOD is doing in collaboration with Vice President Biden's Cancer Moonshot Task Force, and uh, how do you see uh, this new study that you're working on to transform the understanding of biological basis of cancer and harnessing the power of artificial intelligence to improve cancer and uh, disease diagnosis. So the the opportunities under the vice president's leadership for the cancer moonshot are huge for the Department of Defense. And we have been uh, very grateful to his leadership and the consortium of our other federal partners to kind of advance um, both prevention and solutions for the care of of our patients with cancer as well as uh, across the country. So we've, um, we've always had a an interest in cancer and and have uh, a lot of um, biomaterial uh, samples that we've uh, archived from patients who signed consent to do so for us to use those samples in research and and leveraging uh, a lot of uh, those capabilities is one of our strategies within the the cancer moonshot framework. So the first thing we're we're going to do is to um, use data from our serum repository. Uh, to identify biological markers that may be early 
indicators of, of a subsequent cancer. Uh, this may actually help us improve our diagnostic capabilities and our screening for, for cancer in the future. Um, for instance, our serum repository has over 250,000 serum sample from the past 25 years, making it one of the largest biobanks in the world. Um, we're partnering with the Environmental Protection Agency under the Cancer Moonshot umbrella to link the results that we will get from this study to Environmental Quality Index so that we can see if there's any influence of the environment on what happens to people and any changes in their biomarkers that would subsequently lead to cancer. We think this is a, a huge uh, will provide us with some really good insight into how the environment impacts uh, cancer or, or either in, it creates it or enhances uh, its development. Um, and, of course, we, we don't do anything without making sure that we have fully informed consent from our, from our patients. Uh, we do comply with the highest standards of uh, privacy and consent uh, using, using people's uh, samples for, for our research. One of the other very exciting opportunities through the Cancer Moonshot is the Apollo Network. And Apollo stands for the Applied Proteinogenomics Organizational Learning and Outcomes Network. Uh, this is a tri-agency initiative between uh, or among DOD, VA, and the National Cancer Institute. And here we're using genomic and proteinomic analysis of, of patient samples uh, that will eventually provide them with targeted therapies specific for their tumors. Uh, this is a very exciting area of research uh, and can lead to really tailored uh, either uh, participation in cancer clinical trials or tailored medications that uh, we hope will will resolve the, the, the cancer for that particular patient. We're starting with about 8,000 patients in our initial cohort. Um, and hope to share the findings, obviously, with uh, physicians across the world as we post our uh, results on the genomics and proteomics. Um, the other thing that we're working on is using our um, pathology samples. Uh, we have about 34 million samples taken over the years, and we want to make sure that we could uh, digitize them um, and make the, the tissue samples then available for other researchers to, to investigate uh, and use large pools of data to, to kind of enhance and, and promote and advance uh, cancer care therapy and, and uh, screening. We also think this may lead to um, providing algorithms uh, that will improve cancer diagnosis. So kind of using that ad advanced analytics to to select uh, for patients and, and help provide additional uh, knowledge support to our providers to sort through all of the, the vast reams of data that are out there that are probably fairly difficult to manage on a day-to-day -day basis. But we think this combination of investigation, use of our, our existing repositories for samples, and our ability to use our electronic health systems kind of comes together in a very meaningful way for patients to make a real difference for those who have a cancer diagnosis. That's terrific. So, Dr. Geis, um, would you elaborate on the historic outcomes derived from the successes of the joint trauma system over the last 15 years of war? So the, the first thing, um, I think, to make sure everybody recognizes the word that you used, which was joint. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a united effort of all of our military medical providers in theater to make 
a trauma system that worked, that was responsive, and that was rapidly infused the best knowledge and learning into truly transforming the care of the pa- of the trauma patient. Um, we collected uh, data on every casualty we, we treated in theater through the trauma registry, and we leveraged that uh, technology and that repository of information to improve care. Um, we think this is actually a, a good lesson for the country. We talk a lot about using big data to improve care. We've actually done it, um, and we did it in a very meaningful way that improved lives and improved outcomes. Um, our joint trauma system is is going to be preserved for the long term. Uh, we saw the success in theater, and we want to make sure that we don't lose that. Uh, we believe that our combatant commanders, uh, should they have uh, to enter into another conflict, will expect that same level of performance on day one, and we want to make sure we deliver it on day one. That's excellent. So, you know, I'd like to discuss in more detail um, your efforts uh, to promote psychological health and prevent, uh, diagnose, and treat uh, TBI. And you mentioned the relationship you have with the NCAA. Um, What uh, other therapies, what other uh, efforts are you pursuing in these areas, both psychological health and uh, TBI? And what does the future, more importantly, what does the future look like in these areas? Over the last 15 years, more than 300,000 service members have been diagnosed with a TBI, most of them concussion. Uh, And over 1 million have been treated for behavioral health conditions. In 2012, President Obama issued an executive order for the federal agencies to develop a coordinated national research action plan on TBI, PTSD, and related disorders. Um, Under that executive order, the DOD, the VA, and the Department of Health and Human Services have developed a wide-reaching plan to improve the scientific understanding Uh, and develop effective treatments to reduce occurrences of PTSD, psychological health conditions, and TBI, and ultimately suicide. Um, What we've done under the National Action Plan is uh, we've got two major research consortia, uh, and they're gathering uh, together, that gather together federal agencies, universities, and hospitals. Um, We have one to alleviate post-traumatic stress disorder, which uh, works to develop and evaluate prevention, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation strategies. And we have another uh, that works on the chronic effects of neurotrauma, and that's uh, led by the Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, They're looking into researching the long-term effects for mild TBI, which is our, our preponderance of TBI for service members and veterans. Um, so we we have a kind of this combined approach. Uh, we think that uh, you know additional research and and more specifically the rapid infusion of those um, solutions into what we do every day will will do the uh, kind of change the the paradigm, if you will, for those those service members who have psychological conditions or uh, develop a, a TBI. Uh, a couple of the things I wanted to point out, um, since, ni- since 2010, the National Intrepid Center of Excellence, which is at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, has actually led our internal um, DOD approach to promoting evidence-based treatment for TBI, PTSD, and related conditions. 
Um, and then along with the uh, uh, NICO, which is what we call it, uh, we've also opened uh, five intrepid spirit centers, which sort of serve as a, a spokes of the, the, the hub, if you will, of, of NICO at Fort Bragg and Fort Hood most recently. And those are are centers that focus on local care for patients and families affected by TBI and psychological health conditions. So we think this hub-and-spokes approach uh, best, best infuses best learning, um, in, identifies problems a little bit more rapidly, and allows us to address them uh, holistically across the, the enterprise of the military health system. The other thing that we've most recently uh, accomplished in TRICARE is to eliminate uh, inpatient behavioral health bed days, and we're finalizing our policies to make sure that TRICARE is aligned with the Mental Health Parity Act. We've also uh, believe that we are a leader among the United States uh, health systems in achieving high rates of outpatient follow-up for patients with PTSD and depression. Um, 86% of our patients who were hospitalized are seen within seven days at following discharge, which is a best practice. Uh, 95% are seen within 30 days. So not only are we, we making sure that people can get the help they need, but they're getting the follow-up help they need after they're discharged, uh, should that be necessary. Um, additionally, uh, we've got 91% uh, of our patients who have a PTSD diagnosis and 82% of patients with depression uh, have received psychotherapy. So we are doing um, really remarkable work in this area, and I'm very proud of our uh, providers who uh, do this work. I think it is making a difference in our service members' lives. Um, this is not to mean that I think we should stop, because I never think we should stop. We should continue to, to advance the work in this area, making sure that Every service member who suffers a TBI or who has a psychological health uh, problem uh, is seen rapidly, uh, gets the care they need, uh, and is recovered so that they can go back and be uh, active uh, within their job descriptions, or whatever they might be. Dr. Geis, uh, what can you tell us about the Virtual Lifetime Electronic Record Health Information Exchange Initiative? So this is... Um, you know, the, the DOD and the VA, I, I think this is frequently misunderstood. Uh, the DOD and VA currently exchange more health information than other two entities in the world. Um, there's still more that we need to do. We acknowledge that. Um, and one of the ways that uh, we, we work on how to do that is through this uh, concept of a health information exchange. Uh, this is where we want to make sure that we can uh, access and share uh, both DOD and VA data. Um, it's it's essentially the uh, fairly simple yet sometimes hard to deliver concept, so that the provider uh, sitting across the table or the the bench from a, from a patient has all the information they need in order to advise that patient and make the right diagnosis and provide the right recommendations to that patient. When you've got a complex system such as we do in both the DOD and the VA, and information that's obtained uh, by patients going from one facility to the other, you have to have a way to integrate that information into a single, easily digestible mechanism so providers have it when they when they actually need it. Uh, throw in the complexity in the Department of Defense, because we send about 
percent of our patients out to the private sector. So we not only need to integrate better with the VA in providing an information to those providers, but we need to make sure that we get all of the private sector information about that patient so that the provider has it for for a health encounter. So it's really integrating information across those those facilities. Um, we, we are working very hard in the Department of Defense to utilize state information exchanges to get that private sector information back to the Department of Defense, which then becomes part of our electronic health record. Uh, and then we want to make sure that the VA has access to that information. And we're, we're currently using um, uh, mechanisms uh, to make that uh, more easily available to VA, not only on the health side, but on the benefits side as well. So it's all about the data. It's all about making sure that the data is there that informs decisions and opportunities for patients at the time of a health encounter. So Dr. Geis, uh, what uh, advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in either medicine or public service or ideally both? I think that medicine is a very wonderful opportunity for people who want to help other people. It is very gratifying to take care of patients and to see them thrive uh, because of something you did. Uh, As you know, I'm a general surgeon, so my opportunity to intervene in in a significant way in a patient's life by removing a cancer or resolving a, a bowel obstruction was was incredibly uh, meaningful for me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my interaction with my patients. Um, they have to ultimately really trust their surgeon, and, and that is just, it's a wonderful feeling when you have that trust and confidence in each other as a patient and a provider. So anyone who likes that kind of interaction with other, other people, I would highly recommend uh, medicine as a career field. Uh, public service has been another one of those things that I have uh, benefited from and been uh, so glad to be a part of. Um, when I went back to get a degree in public policy, um, I, I did it because I wanted to to learn the tools of the trade, so to speak, uh, and really to make a difference in a different way. Uh, when I worked for Senator Jeffords, um, we frequently had the Congressional Research Office over uh, to help us uh, think through or provide information to the, to the senator. And I remember one time... Um, two of the people that I got to know very well um, and who would come on a moment's notice. One of them asked me, said, well, Dr. Geis, we don't understand why you're doing this. I mean, you were a general surgeon. You actually helped people. (laughs) And I I remember replying to them, "It's, it's that knowledge that I helped people and the knowledge now that you can change an and to an or and help millions more. And so I think the combination of practical practice of medicine and then the application of that into the world of public policy is a wonderful marriage of opportunity. So, Dr. Geis, that's uh, terrific advice. I want to thank you for joining us today. But more importantly, Nicole and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been uh, my pleasure to be here with you today. uh, And I look forward to seeing you all again. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Karen Geis, Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. My co-host from IBM has been Nicole Gartner. 
Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the characteristics of a well-prepared, successful presidential transition? How does the 08-09 presidential transition represent a model to be followed by future incoming and outgoing administrations? What more can be done to enhance the presidential transition process? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Martha Joint Kumar, author of Before the Oath, How George W. Bush and Barack Obama Managed a Transfer of Power. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.